0: for you today is Christian Redemption 101, Christian Redemption 101. Just as a brief reminder of what we covered last week, we learned that the author of this letter, 1 Peter, is Peter, none other than one of the 12 who was originally named by his family Simon, but Peter's name was changed from Simon to Peter as a sort of nickname by Jesus. Jesus. And that name Peter means stone or rock, which we understand to be a sort of suggestive nickname. Maybe Peter was a hard dude. And so Jesus changed his name to Peter. And and we noted that the name that Jesus gives to us is far more important than what anyone else has ever called us. Amen? Amen. We also learned a few other things from this short passage, verses 1 and 2 from last week. We learned that God's people are a chosen people chosen by him. We learned that the spirit of God works in our lives. We learned that the blood of Jesus saves us. And we learned that these items that are mentioned in verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 1 are thematic in matter. In other words, these are themes that Peter is mentioning as a sort of preview for what will be up and coming in the five chapters of his epistle. Now this morning, we're turning a corner and getting into verses 3, 4 and 5. Let me begin by saying this, every major area of study has an introductory class. We'll call it 101. Doesn't matter what it is you might be studying. The basics are introduced and covered sufficiently enough in this class that the students are educated about this topic. We've got, for example, philosophy 101. We have psychology 101. There's even an English 101. But we don't do that here. This morning, by way of 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 5, what I want to talk to you about is Christian redemption 101. A class that aims at introducing and covering the basics of Christian redemption sufficiently enough that you leave here today educated about Christian salvation in Jesus Christ. This lecture, if you will, will be broken down neatly into three sections this morning. Our salvation, our inheritance, and our security. I'll mention those again. Our salvation, our inheritance, and our security. So let's begin with the first section of this lecture in Christian Redemption 101, Our Salvation. Looking again at our text, chapter 1, Verse 3, we see what Peter talks about when it comes to Christian salvation. To begin, he starts with an exclamatory remark, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice what comes after there by way of punctuation, an exclamation point. In other words, this phrase, as far as the apostle Peter is concerned, is not something that is solemn or forlorn or boring. It's not... Oh, blessed be God. It's blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an exclamatory remark. This is what I want you to note, first of all, that Peter says God is blessed. God is blessed. Now, blessed here means to praise, to acknowledge, and to honor David says something like this in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 48, when he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, and my eyes have seen it. Or Psalm 1846, where it says, The Lord lives and blessed be my rock. Or the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, where the Apostle Paul is talking about the gospel, and he says that the good news of the gospel is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Not just any God. He's a blessed God. You see, church, God is to be blessed. God is to be praised. God is to be honored, and God is to be worshipped. Now, if you got here today somehow, some way, you don't know your car just landed you in this parking lot. He's, I don't even know anybody in First Baptist Church of Cutler Ridge, and you come in here. This is what you're here for. You are here to learn that it is not about you. It doesn't matter what your mother said. It is about the blessed God who made you. The Apostle Peter is saying, whatever your philosophy was before you got here, whatever your thinking was before you arrived, understand this. Your life is not your own. It is for the glory of God. And blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we get nothing else from this morning, and of course you will, but if you were to get nothing else from it, get this. It is God above all, and it is God above all forever. The second thing I want you to note is the mercy and the regeneration. Mercy and regeneration. Now, we continue this. It says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So much happening in these few verses that it, I feel like we're never going to sufficiently cover everything, but what I want you to see in this next thought is this. When Peter talks about salvation with other Christians, he says first and foremost that it is according to God's great mercy. It's not just mercy, by the way. It's what kind of mercy. It's great mercy, and some of you know this. Some of you know, because you know God, that if you know him, it's because his mercy is what? Great, because you need it. Some of you, the closer you get to God, the more you realize, the more clearly you see the undeserving nature of your relationship with him. You only have it. You only possess it because of his great mercy. But what's more, not only is it according to his great mercy, but what I want you to see after that comma is, according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. He caused us to be born again. Now, what we're seeing here is what we call regeneration. Regeneration. That's what the word born again means, regeneration. It means to be made new. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says, If you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. If you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. Well, every man and woman is born of a woman in this world. I mean, contrary to what CNN says. But, but, but the reality of the matter is, Every single human being in this world has been born of a woman. I don't care what name or designation or moniker you put on somebody. If you don't have a womb, you're not given birth. And Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus, who was a teacher and a leader in Israel, and was really struggling with Jesus as the Savior. And so he met with him at night, and one of the points that Jesus addressed with him is this. It doesn't matter that you were born of a woman and you live a decent life by my standards. What matters is that you are born again, and that's what regeneration is all about. Regeneration is when God makes us new. But what I want you to see in this verse is that this is not something that happens as a consequence of who we are or what we've done. It is not something that happens as a consequence of who we are or what we've done. I am astonished how often I have a conversation with someone, and I will ask them, for example, well, you believe you're going to go to heaven when you die? Well, of course. And I say, well on what basis do you hold that belief? And they say, well, I've I've lived a good life. Peter says nothing about living a good life here. Peter says, if you have a relationship with God, if you are going to go to heaven, which we're going to get to in verses 4 and 5, then it is not because you are good. It is because of his great mercy and because he caused you, say he caused me, He caused you to be born again. Notice, this is not something that I've done. This is something that he has done to me. This is what is called the passive voice. In other words, it is not active. I did not born myself again. God caused me to be born again. If you are here today and you say, I know Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord, that is because God caused you to be born again. It's not because of who you are or what you know. It's because God has done a great work in your life according to his great mercy. The third, I want you to note under our salvation that this salvation to which we are born again to is called a living Hope a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. You see the juxtaposition there, right? He's comparing and contrasting things. The reason you have any right whatsoever to say, I am born again to a new life for God is because this miraculous transaction between God and you was verified by the resurrection of his son from the dead. The reason you can be born again and anticipate with excitement and eternity in heaven is because God's son died and God's spirit raised him. He has conquered death. Now, if we were to find somebody who had the body of Jesus in a wheelbarrow running up and down the street saying, I found Jesus, we'd all be out of luck. And we could go to Black Point Marina this weekend because let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But Jesus' body was never recovered because Jesus' body is not here. We believe that the excitement and commitment and dedication, indeed the martyrdom of his followers, occurred because that is how serious and that is how truthful the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. If we have a body, Christianity is a zero. But if we have no body, then Christianity is everything. And that's what Peter is saying here. He is saying that our salvation, this living hope, is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. These are vivid words, and he's comparing and contrasting the resurrection from the dead to the fact that our salvation is called a living hope. It was a sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection on the behalf of all those that would place their faith in him. And why was it important for Jesus to die? Could God not have just said, you know what, you know, like we do, like when we're parents? I'm so exasperated, I don't even care anymore. No, because then he would not be just. If God has made a moral universe, and we believe that he has, even our little babies, which we love, we're singing and worshiping, and all the kids are going, ma, 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 squeak, squeeze, squeeze, squeak, and we love our children, but those little kids are sinners, man. You don't have to teach them anything. They do things before they can speak that they know they're not supposed to do because they hide from you when they do it. Because sin is in them, right, Mama? Victoria, beautiful. We love Victoria, and we love Mikey, but they're little sinners, and they need Jesus. We love them dearly, but they need Jesus, just like we do. And, of course, we anticipate that they will know Jesus because they're here each and every Sunday learning about Jesus. That's important. What I'm trying to share with you here in a long, roundabout way is this. If God were to just say, you know what, I'm not going to count sin against anybody anymore, he would not be just because if you break the law, there must be a consequence for that break. In order to satisfy the law and do it rightly, Jesus took, excuse me, God took the punishment of us breaking the law and he put it on Jesus. So that the breaking of the law was paid for. And now we have the right and opportunity to forgiveness. This is what Hebrews 9:22 says. in Hebrews 9:22 it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You know why there's no forgiveness of sins, friends? Because life is in the blood. And so if you want to be forgiven, someone has got to forfeit their life for you. And the only person who is righteous to forfeit their life for you so that you can be saved was Jesus I can forfeit my life for you, but you're not going to get much out of me. I'm not righteous. You can forfeit your life for me, but it won't mean anything because you're not righteous either. If we would be saved, the life of the person who is sacrificing themselves for us must be a righteous life. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus became sin who knew no sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. So friends, when we talk about in verse 3 the salvation that belongs to us, there are a few things that are worthy of note. God is blessed. We are saved through his mercy and regeneration. And this takes place In such a way that our salvation is called a living hope. It's guaranteed by the resurrection of his son who died on our behalf. But that's just the salvation. What about the inheritance? This is our second portion. This is found in verse 4. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. What kind of hope? A living hope through the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, to an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is the part where we get, I think, a little... What's the word I'm looking for that doesn't sound ugly? Nonchalant. laxadaisical, lazy. This salvation that God has given to us is referred to as an inheritance. And I think we sometimes do what those arrogant, unloving children do to their parents when they go, I don't really care about you. Will you hurry up and die and give me the inheritance? And we do that as Christians. We don't really want glory in heaven. We want cars and pools and another coach purse. We want our life to be so amazing today, right here on this planet, whatever 80 years God gives us, we want it to be so amazing that if God says, you want to come to glory with me? We're like, nah. Why would I want to go to glory? It's amazing here. But the reality is, We only think that way because our philosophy is crooked. Our philosophy is wrong. The greatness of God's gift, the weightiness of God's gift, is in our inheritance in heaven. It's not here and now. There's some things that I want you to note in this idea. First, I want you to look at the description. When Peter mentions our inheritance, not Peter's, not mine, ours, If you are in Jesus Christ, if you are saved, it's our inheritance. Everyone has this inheritance. The description of this inheritance includes four things, three of which go like this. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Let me describe these for just a moment. Number one, imperishable. That word imperishable means it is not subject to decay. Your inheritance, Christian, is not subject to decay. Now, can I just be pastoral for a minute? Can I just complain for a minute? You know, we go from 200 to 150, 200 to 150. This is why it's important that your butt is in a pew You must hear this and be reminded that your job pales in comparison to the inheritance that's awaiting you. Some people are not here today because they're painting their kids' room or they're cutting their front yard. Who cares if your grass is long or the paint is not done? You must be reminded of the imperishable inheritance that is awaiting you. Christian, If you're not a Christian, what does it matter? If you're not a Christian, you're looking for pleasure in everything. Season 3, episode 8, pornography, alcohol, you name it. Whatever makes you feel good is your inheritance. That's it. You don't think about tomorrow, but if you're a Christian, tomorrow is the greatest day of your life. But if you neglect coming together and putting your butt in this pew on a regular basis, and by regular basis, I mean every week. I don't mean twice a month and be like, hey, That's more than I've been in a long time. You need to come together, rub shoulders with people who believe what you believe to be reminded that what you think is not what is important. What you think is not what is necessarily right. It's what God says. And what God's word says is there is something imperishable, something that is not subject to decay awaiting you in glory. It's not only imperishable, though it's undefiled it's undefiled and what that means is this it is unstained by sin and it is unpolluted by the world everything is stained by sin and everything is polluted by the world even our children as I mentioned earlier were born and we love our children come when we say they're innocent and and we, we understand what that means but they're not but you know what I mean It means that we haven't messed them up yet. That's all that means. They're naive. They're young. They don't understand. They don't know. In that regard, they're innocent, of course. (laughs) But the idea is this. Everything in the world is polluted by sin, is tarnished by sin. And we see it. I mean, you can sit here and argue with me philosophically all you want, you can say, well, I think sin is an illusion. Well, I don't think so, because the Bible says that because of sin, you will die, and I, I will place a $1 million bet on this issue right now. You're going to die. I don't even have a million dollars, and I'll place that bet. You're going to die. We're all going to die, right? And we know that this is what's happening. We deal with our migraines. We've got somebody dealing with migraines. We've got cancer, we have diseases. We have a child in our school that's suffering from a, from a situation with her pancreas. And she's, she's a good kid. It's a horrible situation. But you know what happens in a sinful world? Terrible things. Terrible things. We've got a single mom who's one of our employees who's working her butt off and is a wonderful, wonderful person and has a kidney stone that just will not pass. And she is trying to do the best that she can for her one son because her husband has died and she's alone. You know why that is. You know why that is. You know why things like this happen because we're sinners in a sinful world, guys. This is not glory. Everything in the world is tarnished by sin. You know how it is. You wake up in the morning and you can't even sneak down the hallway. The knees and the ankles pop, crack. Oh, our bodies are reminding us that we're going to the grave soon. But our God is reminding us that he's got something in store. And the world will not reach it there. It will be undefiled. But not only will it be imperishable, meaning it will not be reached by decay. Not only will it be undefiled, meaning sin will not affect it in that way. It will not be polluted. But he also says, thirdly, it's unfading. It's unfading. It's unfading. It doesn't need Botox. It doesn't need lip fillers, it doesn't need Ozempic, I feel like I'm beating up on the girls right now, don't I? It doesn't need kettlebells, you don't have to do three you know, sets of 10 with this and that or the other. It is perfect, and it will not fade. It is perfect, and it will not fade. What what does that word unfading mean? It means unlike the things of the world, it won't be ruined by rust. It won't be ruined by age. And its beauty will not fade. The inheritance that God has for his people started beautiful, and it will always be beautiful. those are 3 of the 4 descriptors the fourth descriptor is the second subpoint and that is this its location it is kept in heaven for you kept in heaven for you to help us understand the greatness of the inheritance that god has in store for us peter says this inheritance this amazing inheritance is kept in heaven for you. The word kept is a perfect passive in the original Greek. The you know, passive means it's being done for you. You can't keep it. God's keeping it for you. You know, like when you give something to your kids and you're like, oh, I'm so excited. And they're like, but you say, let me hold it. Let me hold it because you might lose it. This is valuable. It's yours, but I'm keeping it so that nothing happens to it. That's what this passive means. It means God's keeping it for you. And it's in the perfect tense. The perfect tense is very interesting. I'm going to read this quote to you from a Greek scholar. It says, quote, the Greek perfect tense describes an action that was brought to completion in the past, but whose effects are felt in the present. Something that was completed in the past, but whose effects are felt in the present. We don't have this in English, by the way. There's no equivalent to the Greek perfect tense in English. It's pretty amazing. Essentially, what's being said here is our inheritance of salvation is already ours. It was bought for us in completion, it's already ours, but we have more to anticipate we have more to look forward to. We are experiencing it in the present, but there is also another sense in which Peter says it is kept in heaven for us. What safer place is there than heaven where God is keeping what he has promised to you? until the time when he calls you home. This reminds me of something Jesus once said. This is in Matthew's gospel. Jesus once said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. One author writes this, while the Christian's adversaries might destroy all that they have in the world, there is a reward that no force on earth can touch. This might be hard for some of you to hear. You may be going through a season in your life right now where the one thing you've been asking for God or from God, He has not given to you. But what we can walk away with in this text is at least this promise. He may not give it to you while you're here on earth, but you will have it in glory. You may be asking God, God, heal me, God, change me, God, do this or do that, and he may be working in your life to a particular degree, and it might not be the degree you hoped he would work. But when you get to heaven, you will be glorified. Now, how do we know that? Great question, verse 5. Our security. Our security. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again, right, to a living hope through the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's verse 3. That's our salvation. Verse 4, to an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, You, who by God's power, by whose power? Who by God's power are being guarded. Oh, man, that is good. Kept in heaven for you, who's you? You who are being guarded by God's power. Let's take that one step at a time. When we talk about our security... First and foremost, I want you to note the first few words. What a beautiful verse here that Peter gives to us. It's an important phrase. Who by God's power are being guarded. First of all, God's power. We talk about God's power. We're talking about this issue of security. And of course, if you're wondering what I mean by security, I guess I should preface what I want to tell you with this. By security, I mean once you are saved, once you are in the family of God, you cannot be kicked out of the family of God. This is what we call security or eternal security. There are some people who believe and teach that once you are a Christian, you can lose your salvation. You cannot be a Christian anymore. In fact, we've talked about this a little bit. There's a philosophy going around within the church called deconstructionism. And people are saying, well, I grew up as a Christian, but I'm not a Christian anymore. Wrong! Wrong! If you are not a Christian anymore, you were not a Christian. There is no such thing as not a Christian anymore. That doesn't exist. If you are a Christian, then you are a Christian until you... Receive your inheritance. Now, that doesn't mean you're a perfect person. doesn't mean you don't stumble and fall. But there's a big difference between somebody who says, well, I used to go to church and I used to read my Bible, but I don't believe in Jesus anymore. Listen, you can read your Bible all you want. That's not faith. Faith means whatever happens, I trust him. Whatever happens, I love him. Whatever happens, I believe him. So when we talk about security, we're talking about the fact that if you are saved, you are safe. If you are in God's family, you are never ousted from God's family. And why is this the reality? Easily enough, friends, Peter says this is a reality because of God's power. In other words, if he is strong enough to save you, he is strong enough to keep you. Did you get this? If he's strong enough to save you, he's strong enough to keep you. And this is what Peter says. You who are, by God's power, being guarded. In other words, the security of our salvation is certain Because God is strong enough to make it certain. Jesus once said this in John chapter 10. It's a beautiful verse. He says, I give my sheep eternal life, and they will never perish. When? Never. I give my sheep eternal life, Jesus says, and they will never perish. And listen to this. I love this. He says, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. That's ownership. That's possessiveness. There are a lot of things and a lot of people that might come against you when you become a Christian. And they might discourage you and distract you. They might try to derail you from the course that you're on with Jesus. And you might be lousy at holding on to Jesus. But Jesus is not lousy at holding on to you. No one and nothing will snatch you from his hand. We are safe because God is strong. That's what Peter's saying. Who, by God's power, are being guarded. Listen, this is the next phrase that I want you to see here. Are being. This This is the present passive. The present passive means Right now, it's ongoing, but it's not you doing it. I'm not the one guarding myself. God is guarding me. It is God who is guarding me, and it's not something he did yesterday. This is the present, which means he's doing it today. And tomorrow, when you wake up, you just say, I am in the process of being guarded by God. And when the next day happens, you wake up and you go, I am in the process of being guarded by God. That's what this means. There is never a time when God is not guarding you. And that's such an interesting word, guarded. If you have an NIV translation, then you'll see it says shielded, which is kind of a neat translation. It's actually used to describe a soldier keeping a prisoner in prison. But what's interesting here is, obviously, God is not keeping us in prison. God is guarding us and keeping us safe as we go through this life and toward our inheritance. And how is he doing this? It says, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith. In other words, if you are not a person of faith, You don't believe in Jesus. If you believe that there's a God who created, but you don't believe in this God, you are not being guarded. You are on your own. God is not everyone's guard. He is the guard of his family. So here we have Peter saying, uh, he's got this inheritance waiting for you, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If you are being guarded, it's because you're family. If you aren't family, you're not being guarded. It's that simple, and what is the distinction between those who are or are not in the family? It is faith. Faith. All of this is through faith. We have faith with God, and that means we trust him, We believe him, we honor him, we worship him, we love him. No, not perfectly. Anybody perfect? Keep your hands down. Very good. No one is perfect. We make mistakes. Some of you made mistakes on the way here today. i got to go to church, stupid. Let's go. It happens, doesn't it? That's why it's important that we're kept by God's power and not ours. Our faith might be imperfect, but do we have faith? One author writes this, If God's power does not protect us from unbelief, it is hard to see what it does. How is God protecting us until the end if his guarding plays no role in our continuing faith? We are suggesting that 1 Peter 1.5 contains a glorious promise. God's power protects us because his power is the means by which our faith is sustained. We won't lose faith as long as we are protected by God's power. And I love this final part, A Salvation Ready to be Revealed. Ready to be revealed means that Peter is reminding us the last day has not come, but it's coming. Until we're in glory or Jesus comes again, we are elect exiles. We are his people, but we are living in a foreign land chosen by him to live for him and represent him. The promise that Peter is reminding us of has a purpose, and that purpose is this. Don't quit. Don't lie down. Don't play dead. There is an inheritance awaiting you as you reach the end of this journey. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation to be revealed in the last time. That phrase, last time, I think is a reference to the judgment. When all things are finalized and the book is closed, when we stand before God, friends and family, none of us will be standing before him righteous. None of us are righteous, but some of us will be standing forgiven. And that forgiveness, that salvation is found in Jesus Christ. So let me close this morning by saying this. In this morning's lecture, if you will, we have gone through three sections of the Christian Redemption 101. Our salvation, our inheritance, and our security. None of these things is available to anyone outside of Jesus. We have these things available to us because of Jesus, through Jesus. And what is the prerequisite by which these things are received? Faith. Faith. It is a belief, guys. It is not a work. We're not going to come to him and go, God, look what I've brought. An Amazon box. Look at all this amazing stuff. Let me tell you why this doesn't work, family. God is holy. He's spotless. He's perfect. God is the definition of clean. Isaiah, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, says that when we bring our good deeds to God, they're like filthy rags to him rags. It would be like, you know, I'm working on the Harley or something, and I've got a rag, it's covered in grease, and I come in, and Dimey says, help me with the dishes, and hands me a clean plate, and I wipe it with a greasy rag. This is the comparison that we're talking about here, friends. St. Augustine said this, he said, our good deeds are just splendid sins. Because there is such a chasm between us and God. He is holy and we are unholy. And that chasm has to be breached. And it was breached by Jesus. And we can cross the chasm by faith in the one who breached it for us. No other way. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. Interestingly enough, it's the apostle Peter preaching there. And he says... God has given to us no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. No other name, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Joseph Smith. No one else can save us, only Jesus. If you want salvation, if you want the inheritance, and you want the security of knowing that God will guard you until the end, You could have these things by praying a simple prayer. God, I'm a sinner, and I need your salvation, and I accept your salvation today in Jesus. It's that simple. Christianity is not just about the prayer, though. It's about living the life that God's called us to live on the way to our inheritance There's a lot of people that get emotional sometimes. They cry in church, and then they're never in church again. They say, wow, that was such a great experience, and they feel better. There's a sort of catharsis that happens, and they let out their emotions, and and they feel better momentarily, and they go back to the same codependent, unhealthy, wicked relationships that they had before the catharsis. Nothing's changed. What's changed? Not a thing. Not a thing. When we get saved, God puts us on another path. Our life should look like we're on a different road, amen? It might not look like that drastic in the first couple months, you know what I mean? Sometimes we get started in Christianity, man, we're like limping. I'm only here by the grace of God. And everybody says, regardless of what mile marker they're on, amen! I'm only on this path because of the grace of God. I don't care if you're limping. I care what path you're on. Limp, let's go. But if you say words and stay on a different path, well, that's demonstrating to us that no real change took place. No real commitment took place. Today, my challenge for you is this. If Christian Redemption 101 is something that is unfamiliar to you until today. I hope that you will make a commitment to Jesus today.